Hello and welcome to the Progressive Policy Institute podcast. My name is Colin Mortimer. Today, I am joined by Oregon State Treasurer Tobias Reed. We had a conversation about what exactly a state treasurer does, the initiatives he's put in place, both as a state treasurer and former elected official from Oregon, and how his office has adapted to COVID. In the spirit of adapting to COVID, we are both recording in our home offices in lieu of recording in person. So I hope you'll excuse the occasional audio glitch or noise that you'll hear. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Tobias, how are you? I'm COVID okay. How about you, Colin? I'm COVID okay as well. Is doing as good as I possibly can. Yeah, it's the shorthand for me that just says everyone's got challenges. We've got a sixth grade daughter and a second grade son and uh, you know two working parents who are not trained as educators but we're lucky to have a, a home to live in and jobs to do and so uh, we can't really really complain about these things the pandemic put, has put things into perspective for a lot of people and me included absolutely so to kick things off would you like to say your full name and what you do I am Tobias James Reed, and I am fortunate to serve as state treasurer in the great state of Oregon. So while I'm sure most listeners who are hearing that are familiar with the state treasurer, especially our American listeners, one thing as I was asking people about like what questions I should ask a state treasurer were like, can a state treasurer explain what the state treasurer actually does? Because unlike the treasury secretary, your job is quite different from the United States state um, the United States Treasury Secretary. You're, you're not printing Oregon bucks, for example. That's right. We have uh, we joke about that at various times, whether the limitation on that is actually an advantage or a disadvantage. But the joke we have amongst state treasurers is uh, you know, if, you've wet, if you've met one state treasurer, you've met one state treasurer. Uh, every one of us is different. Um, some of us, as I'm sure we'll talk about, are elected. Some of us are appointed. Uh, but I think what keeps us uh, on the same track is some obligations around keeping public money safe. Um, there's a common misconception that we are uh, empowered somehow to determine the state budget or to collect taxes. And you know, we're, we're frequently correcting that misunderstanding. But we do manage public money and other money sometimes uh, until it's used for its intended purpose. Uh, in Oregon and in most places, the state doesn't take in or send out any money without it touching treasury. We function as a bank for the state and for a lot of local governments as well. We invest money. Uh, the pension fund, in our case, that's about close to $90 billion is our responsibility to, to manage. That, however, is not public money, another common misconception. We manage it on behalf of current and future retirees, but it's an important part of our work. Uh, we also uh, have a really consistent mission about helping Oregonians achieve long-run financial security. And we do that through a, a suite of savings programs, financial empowerment programs that are aimed at retirement and uh, college savings and uh, savings for people who are living with disabilities. Uh, and we try to bring those financial tools to bear uh, for state agencies as well, managing cash flow. Um, and responsible for all the debt that the state incurs when we finance infrastructure. Um, all the bonds that the state offers are sold by Treasury uh, and refinanced by Treasury when, when appropriate. 
And on top of that, um, as treasurer, I get to sit on a number of other boards and, and entities that range from the State Board of Education to one of our um, economic development, two of our economic development entities. So it's a really great fit for me in terms of the interests that I have, the um, experiences and the training that I've got, all focused on trying to help Oregon and Oregonians achieve um, as much financial security and autonomy as we can. So you touched on this, and I want to dig a little bit deeper into it, which is that there are elected and appointed state treasurers, which is something I, I didn't know, actually. Like, I'm from New York. I had, like, the vague perspective of, like, like oh, well, no, I know a lot of positions in New York are appointed, though I actually can't say offhand whether the treasurer in New York is appointed or not, or if we you even do, have one. I don't think we have one. You don't. You have a comptroller, um, which is pretty close. Ah. Uh, Tom DiNapoli. Uh, is is definitely one of our colleagues. He has a slightly different title. And, you know, if you've met one comptroller, I assume you've met one comptroller, although there are a lot fewer comptrollers than <laughs> our treasurers. But what is your perspective on, like, what is the difference between a, a elected state treasurer and an appointed one? Like, is the democratic process important when selecting a state treasurer? Or is it more just like a bureaucratic management job? I think it really depends on what you want out of that office. Um, you know, I, I know uh, and I have great respect for a lot of appointed state treasurers, but I, in my experience, I, I have observed in them uh, some additional reluctance to take a, a public position. Um, one of the great freedoms I feel as an elected person uh, is, is an ability to say what I think and to advocate for policies that I think make sense. I, I was once on a, but that's not always uh, well understood. I was, I was on a, a plane once in the before times with uh, with, a, with a very prominent person um, who introduced me to somebody else uh, and then said, oh, he works for the governor. And I had to say, no, I, I don't. I was selected on my own. <laughs> and, um, you might have seen that on your ballot. Um, but it gives me the authority and the ability um, to advocate for positions that I, I think are right, um, to make decisions uh, without having to go through the approval of someone else. Um, on the other hand, I suppose um, someone who is uh, appointed and not elected uh, could, in some other cases, uh, feel some freedom to do things without having to face the uh, voters. But in the end, you know, it's it's probably a question we could we could ask Alexander Hamilton, and and he'd have a have a strong opinion about it. I I like it just <laughs> fine um, the way it is. The other question I get frequently that's sort of related is should an elected treasurer be a partisan position or a nonpartisan position? In Oregon, it's partisan, and I'm just fine with that. I don't think that the positions I take are inherently or excessively partisan, but I think the, um, the, the affiliation I have as a Democrat is um, indicative of, of the values and the approach that I bring uh, to this work. Um, I think you know, it doesn't mean that I agree with everything every Democrat says, and I don't think that's true for most Republicans, um, but I think it does offer some clue as to the, as the approach I take, and I, I wear that label probably. It's also the case that um, elected officials who are quote-unquote nonpartisan have a very um, evident partisan background, often from their past elected positions. So you can say, while well, this office is nonpartisan, it usually is assume that the person holding that office is either a Democrat or a Republican. I, I think that's true in a lot of cases, you know, some some more than others, but it's not as if someone, um, by virtue of having a nonpartisan position, relinquishes all their historical affiliations or, or um, 
tendencies. You're certainly right about that. So the times when people hear about state pension funds are usually when they receive one or they hear it in the news because it is going into bankruptcy. So can you go into a bit more detail about what the responsibility as a state treasurer is when managing the pension fund? Yeah, I, I have two roles uh, in this in this respect. Uh, one is as the state's chief investment officer. Um, that's the the role of the treasurer in in the constitution. Um, you know, in the old days, that might have me- meant that the treasurer, him or herself, thus far it's all been uh, himself in in Oregon, um, might be making the decisions on their own. It's not the case anymore. We have a really talented and world class staff um, who carry out the uh, responsibilities and the operations of the investment division, but um, they, they report to me. Uh, the other role is as one of five voting members of the Oregon Investment Council. And this is sort of like the legislative branch of our investment world. Um, I'm, I'm a member of the, uh, the director of the uh, PERS system is as a uh, ex officio non-voting member. And there are four other members who are appointed by the governor and confirmed by our Senate. And together we set kind of the, the broad outlines, the, the policy, the deal with our appetite for risk, uh, our approach to different asset classes, those sorts of things. And then the treasury staff um, carry that out. It's a really significant responsibility. There's hundreds of thousands of Oregonians who have been public servants or are public servants now whose retirements we are responsible for. Um, We have a a hybrid system in Oregon that has a defined uh, benefit portion and a defined contribution portion. And the work that we do as a result matters to everyone. A dollar that we can generate in investment returns is a dollar that doesn't have to come from the budget or ultimately from taxes. About 75 cents of every dollar that goes out in uh, benefit payments now come from those investment returns. And that that amounts to uh, close to $4 billion each year in the Oregon economy. And those are dollars that people are using to buy groceries and pay their utility bill and, and their rent or their mortgage. Um, so it's a really significant part of, of the Oregon economy. And the other benefit that we have as a result of that responsibility is that, you know, of course, we, we pay attention to what's happening on a day-to-day basis. We have to make sure that we have sufficient liquidity to make those payments and to, um, to, to meet those obligations. But we're not as concerned uh, about day-to-day as we are about the long term. Our obligations go out to the future, so we have to be concerned about uh, what's happening in the, in the macro trends, in the big environment, and how do we want to exert our influence and make our decisions as a, as a major institutional investor, oftentimes uh, in conjunction with, with other institutional investors, and often uh, in service of, of bigger trends. You know, we can, we can exert our influence when it comes to um, climate disruption, when it comes to board diversity, Um, when it comes to the kinds of things that while they are the right thing to do and and comport with our values, ultimately we can do them because they're going to contribute to better risk management and more returns for our beneficiaries. Well, thank you for giving me the 101 on on, um, pension fund management, because that is something I had no idea about. I was not kidding when I say like my perspective on is you hear about in the news when it's going bankrupt or you hear someone who receives a pension, Um, but the perspective of how states manage 
pensions is just something I was never aware of. Um, you touched on this before we started recording, and I, I kind of want to get you to say again because I thought it was interesting. How is your office been handling the pandemic? So far, so good. Um, I don't think anyone has has it nailed exactly, but um, we found, you know, I mean, one, we're fortunate to have the sort of work that is more conducive to remote than uh, than a lot of other things that, that state government and, and private uh, industry has to do. Uh, but we've been preparing for a long time for a, a disruption. In our case, uh, Oregon is, is overdue for a major earthquake. So we've been preparing pretty diligently for that. And as a result, we found it relatively easier um, to get out of the office because people had the hardware and the software they needed to continue operating from, from home. And it really is the case that you know, we have a, a no-fail mission. Um, we have to be able to, to get money where it needs to go, uh, no matter whether we have a, a pandemic or, in our case, some really horrific wildfires in Oregon last fall. And so we're, we're learning from this experience. And, and gallows humor, though it may be, I often remind people that this is really just sort of practice uh, for the earthquake because... Uh, as inconvenient as it may be, we're, we're sitting in our homes with electricity and internet and a lot of technology that probably won't be available uh, after an earthquake. And it, it is kind of striking to hear that the state treasurer's office in Oregon is preparing for an earthquake. Um, I do hope that the rest of the state um, offices are doing the same. They are to some degree, although we take a lot of pride um, in having conversations with legislators um, remotely these days about what we're doing. And uh, because I'm an independently elected constitutional officer, I have some ability to do some things. And one of them, uh, we're working with a uh, a private developer on a, a new building for a, a large portion of our uh, treasury staff. And it's going to be the first of its kind in terms of its seismic resilience. Um, it's going to cost us more in rent, but I've really been leaning into that conversation with legislators saying this is a good investment. And frankly, you know, if, if we want to be an example for the rest of state government, but even if we're moderately successful in that, we're expecting that if an earthquake does occur, uh, we need to be prepared for a lot of state government showing up at our door saying, can we be here for a while? Because uh, very likely will be not be very many uh, state buildings that are operational immediately afterward. So I want to pivot and talk sure. about some of the, the things I read about or, or saw when I was preparing for this episode. And one of them was one of your campaign ads. Um, in general, multiple of them. I was struck by the fact that they are all incredibly nerdy. Like you really lean into the fact that like being a state treasurer is a nerdy job. Like it is definitely not as as sexy as as the other ones where you get to stand up and say i'm going to save the country like ultimately your job at the end of the day is managing money and, and managing numbers um there's the one where you're singing the praises of compound interest um there is the one where you're axe throwing you, you then you hit the target but the axe bounces back off and you say you're you're more of a numbers guy um i i guess this one like i don't really have a good question for you other than just to to point out that i thought those were very funny and if you're listening to this podcast episode you should google tobias reed campaign ads and just look at some of them because you'll get a kick out of them i guess there's there's just two responses to this i mean one, one is to, you know sometimes it's it's more productive to not to not fight reality in terms of who i am but the other is to take great umbrage and personal affront at the the notion that this is not a sexy job it's a great job <laughs> it's a terrific job i mean you must have heard that 
maybe apocryphal story about Einstein being asked what was the most powerful force in the universe. And, and of course, his answer was compound interest. Um, so it's true. These are things that can really make a difference. And, and kidding aside, uh, I know we're going to talk about uh, retirement savings and so on, but that's the stuff that, that really can be gratifying when you watch people who have otherwise felt isolated or disconnected so to get a gleam in their eye and feel like they're they're connected and they're part of um, part of the mainstream like they have a future um, it doesn't fit on bumper stickers it's not the subject of headlines as much but you know in the in the long run of of an economy this is how you make a difference for people and how generational change can start uh, when you give people the chance to to get the education they want to have the resources to make choices for themselves um, that's something everybody ought to get excited about. And I don't understand why everybody isn't. I'm just kidding, of course. <laughs> well, look, look, me being also a nerd, when I saw you passionately talking about compound interest, I was like, this is a guy I can have a conversation with about how awesome compound interest is. Because he, he, he spent money on this ad. He put this on TV. We have a joke in our in our family with our, our sixth grade daughter and our second grade son that if someone calls you a nerd, you should say thank you. It's, uh, you know, it's a compliment. This is someone who knows something and is recognized as an expert. And that's uh, a good thing. Just say that their dad is a paid nerd. So it's okay to be one. That's right. That's right. Um, so on that topic of how nerdy state treasurer is, I do want to get into the weeds of, of some of the stuff that you've done as state treasurer. Um, so the one thing I have I've noticed, um, and this goes back to um, your time in as Oregon, were you a state senator or a legislator? State I was a state representative. And, and okay. since we're on the uh, uh, podcast format, I can joke a little bit. There's, of course, the, the Tip O'Neill comment about the uh, Republicans being the opposition and the Senate being the enemy. Uh, in Oregon, we like to point out, those of us who are members of the House or were members of the House, that um, it is not the case that the Senate is the upper chamber. And we know this because in the Oregon Capitol, the governor's office is in the middle of the building. And at one point there was a fire in the governor's office. So of course they put a bunch of water on it to put out the fire. Well, you might guess where the water ran uh, to the Senate. So we know that the Senate is in fact the lower chamber in Oregon. So when people sometimes <laughs> say that I was a Senator, I'd, I'd say respectfully, please don't demote me. Uh, <laughs> Okay, that was the, the best correction to me not reading my notes correctly, because it says right there, representative, and I just didn't see it when I was saying it. Um, but I got that story out of it, so it was worth it. Um, so one of the things that you did as a representative and then continued as treasurer was a program called Oregon Saves. Can you tell me a little bit more about this program? Yeah, we're really proud of it. And, you know, in Oregon, we are, are proud of our roots as innovators. And this is a good example of it. Oregon Saves is the first program in the country to operate as an opt-out retirement system for people in the private sector who don't otherwise have that option. Um, it's not much different in Oregon in terms of numbers, but about half of people in the country uh, don't have a way to save for retirement at work. And that is a big problem because people are not saving. And if they do have that option at work, they're more than five times more likely to participate. But if people don't have, you know, have a savings plan, they're likely to face a really awful choice of continuing to work into their golden years or retiring into poverty. And we just were not satisfied with that choice at all. So 
Um, you're right. This was a, a nice bit of continuity that one of the last uh, major pieces of legislation I worked on as a legislator was the creation of what was what is formally known as the Oregon Retirement Savings Plan, uh, now known as, as Oregon Saves. And it's a fairly simple concept that has been uh, thus far pretty revolutionary in effect. What we said was, if you are an employer in Oregon and you've chosen not to offer a retirement plan, your obligation is to facilitate Oregon Saves. And what that means is you say to your employees, unless you tell me otherwise, 5% of your wages are going to go into your IRA. Uh, individual employees can opt out. They can change that number, um, but most of them don't. And now, just a few years in, even before we have completely rolled it out and, and we're taking a pause for COVID-related reasons, uh, we have nearly 90,000 people who have IRAs. Collectively, they've, they've saved about $90 million. Now, that's obviously not enough uh, to retire on yet. But yet is the key word because the power of this program is going to be seen decades down the road when, when a person who starts their career now gets into this habit and acknowledges or gets used to the idea that some portion of their income needs to go to their retirement. And maybe even without noticing it, they get towards the end of their career and realize they have some accumulated assets. They have some choices. And I like to point out to my uh, Republican and conservative friends that this is a program that even those who are singularly devoted to small government ought to like, because those same people who have resources and choices are going to need less help uh, from taxpayers. But the bottom line is just how gratifying it is to watch people um, get on track and feel empowered and feel like they have a future. So we're really proud of Oregon Saves, as I'm, I'm sure is coming through as I talk about it. I, I do have a few technical questions because I'm just Great. curious how you design a program like this. Um, let's say I'm a worker. I just like don't know that this program exists and 5% of my wages are saved. And then I'm like, oh, crap, I, I need that money. Can I withdraw the money from th this account without a penalty? There's, there's two yeses to that question. Um, the first is we have set up a, a period of time um, where you can opt out instantly with with no exceptions that's the it's happening do you want to opt out no great we'll keep going the the longer term yes is because the the vast majority of the accounts that are established are roth iras and so the contributions that are made are post tax and are therefore not uh subject to, to early withdrawal penalties or anything else that plays out in an important way as well because as we've seen in covid times um, these can also function as emergency savings accounts. We're not promoting them as such, and, and we want people to think of them as retirement accounts instead, but uh, making a withdrawal from your Roth IRA is a heck of a lot better than a, um, an auto title loan or something, something awful. Uh, and we did, see, we did see a little spike in the early stages of the pandemic, uh, and since then the, they've really returned to uh, normal trends as people continue to save. So, um, so yes and yes is the, is the short answer to your question. And if I don't touch my account, what the what is like the default investment for someone who lives in Oregon? We don't like to say default associated with uh, with any retirement savings, but the standard path um, is pretty <laughs> pretty well articulated, and um, that stems from from the recognition that a lot of people who are saving have never done this before, and we don't want to overwhelm people uh, with with choices. Um, you know, the, that's a, a key element of a program like this is that choice architecture. So. 
um, the first thousand dollars that you would accumulate goes into a, a capital preservation fund. Um, that is a super low risk, unfortunately also low return option. And then uh, everything after that goes into a target date fund. Um, that of course is, is uh, well-informed listeners like you have um, will know is, is essentially optimized for the risk appropriate for a person's age, getting more conservative the closer one gets to an expected date of requirement, uh, date of retirement. The only other option that we have uh, is an S&P 500 index. So there are only three options and uh, a person can change amongst them, but that's the standard path. First thousand dollars into the capital preservation fund and then everything into the target date fund based on your age. And does Oregon manage these programs itself? Like does, does your office create these target date funds or do you contract out to a company or a third party? We have a, a relationship with uh, State Street um, for the money management and, uh, and an, another external partner uh, for the record keeping, uh, the interaction with, with individual savers and, and employers. Um, we could do that ourselves and um, at least the, the money management and maybe someday we will. Uh, have a lot of confidence in our team, but, but uh, State Street's doing a good job for us right now too. So you, you keep using these terms and I'm, I'm fairly certain um, there is a certain person who's inspired this program, um, especially when, when you began describing this program by saying opt out. Um, was there any inspiration from a, a certain Nobel Prize winner, Richard Thaler, for designing a program like this? For listeners who are unaware, he, he wrote a book and won a Nobel Prize for this concept of nudging people and these opt in out, out, out programs to basically incentivize good behavior. It's true. Um, he is an inspiration for this program and I think a lot of other things that, that I think about. And Nudge is a great book for sure. Uh, I would also recommend his memoir, uh, Misbehaving, uh, which was pretty great about the development of behavioral economics as a, as a field. Um, I think we, you know, we really, I, I, probably the, the single thing that, that is most uh, impactful from that book for me was the description that, that he and Sunstein gave of themselves as libertarian paternalists. Uh, they went on to say that, uh, you know, we want to let you do what you want. We just want to make it easier for you to do what's in your own best interest. And I was really proud of the fact that at one point, as we were debating the, the establishment of the program, I, I had a conversation with one of the uh, financial journals at the Oregonian, which is our sort of paper of record. And and he asked about how this happened and what it was like. And, and I, Brent Huntsberger called Thaler and had an interview with him. And, and part of the conversation that they had was about the contrast between what we were doing and what Washington State was doing in, in essentially creating a marketplace uh, of, of uh, retirement plans, but without the opt-out provisions. And I probably should go back and, and print out this quote uh, from Thaler that made it into the article in which he said, Oregon's approach is clearly superior. Uh, <laughs> so we have the, the uh, endorsement of the Nobel laureate and, and we're proud of it. That's pretty good. Yeah. I did not realize he endorsed the, the program. Um, but if I um, afterwards, like if I can dredge up that quote, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes of this episode so people <laughs> can read the article themselves. Um, so uh, there's actually a, a quite a bit of academic research that's been done about this program. Um, one paper out of UPenn showed that the program covers 24,000 workers and has amassed assets of $22.7 million dollars. Was this the impact that you thought when you designed the program or is it exceeded or um, undershot your expectations? 
It's a great question. Um, the first place to start is to acknowledge that uh, while those those numbers uh, were at one point accurate, we've uh, we've gone well past that now. We're we're nearly ninety thousand accounts and just about ninety million dollars. Uh, oh wow! Both of those numbers go up uh, each week, um, uh, and. <laughs> I get that. I get versions of that question all the time, you know, saying, is this meeting your plans or is this that sort of thing? And, and the answer is always the same in that there was no plan. Uh, we're the first to do it. We're driving into, into totally unmarked territory here. And so we certainly had kind of scenarios to figure out how our budget would work and what it would be like and so on. And, and this is one of the scenarios that, that we uh, contemplated, but no one had done it before. And so there's not a lot to compare to. So in the, in the long run, I think one real advantage for Oregon, uh, for the country, frankly, is to have a smaller state like Oregon go first. Um, California and Illinois are right behind us. And um, I haven't, I don't look at their numbers every week like I look at ours. If they haven't already passed us, they will quickly. Um, but they're learning from some of the things that we've done. Uh, they're doing things slightly differently and in some respects, they're doing it more confidently in others where they've worked out for us. Um, and we're, we're all of us um, regularly engaged with other states that are embarking on this adventure in Colorado. We, I went and testified in Colorado as they were considering their legislation. Uh, Virginia just passed the legislation as well. Connecticut, Maryland, New York, um, Pennsylvania, Kansas. We're, we're talking to a lot of a lot of states around the, the country about this idea. So I think the impact um, thus far is more or less on track to the extent we had a track. But what's exciting about it is that it is just the very beginning. And as people as I said earlier, you know, if they get used to the idea that they should be saving, that can have a really big impact on the quality of life that we can all enjoy, that the, uh, the freedom that, that um, state and local governments and the federal government, frankly, uh, will hopefully uh, earn over time to be able to invest in other things. Um, I think that's the, we're, we're going to see the impact uh, in, in decades to come. So can you take credit for being the person who started this program if it reaches every other Democratic state and hopefully some Republican states in the country? I'd be happy to, uh, uh, to take credit for being part of the team. <laughs> That's the humble answer. It's, I know what you the, meant there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like in, in doing research about this, um, there have been other papers that have kind of just showed specifically about Oregon saves, but just like broadly about these savings programs also, which is that like for some people, they're not ideal. Um, there was one paper that showed that like, if you are a, a young low wage worker, participating in these programs probably isn't ideal for you because like the, the garnishment of your wages at this age and, and the reduction of income matters less than if you waited until you were 40 and then just garnished additional of your wages is, is basically how it goes, which is, I mean, the, the broad question I'm trying to get out here is like, obviously with a program like this, like there will be people who are worse off, even if broadly or generally, like most people will be better off. So on that, it's a positive effect. Was this something you considered when you were designing the program? And if so, um, what do you think about like how the program is designed for, for people who this might not be the best fit for them? Yeah, it is. It's an important point. I was reacting a little bit to your thought about how it wouldn't matter as much to start saving until later when I would suggest the, the opposite is, is, is true because of the effect of compound interest and how much longer those early savings can compound. But your larger point remains. It's certainly true that it doesn't make sense for everyone. 
But I guess I would say two things to that. One, we focus just relentlessly on making this as, as light a touch as possible for the employers who are our partners in facilitating it and as convenient as possible for savers. So it's really easy to opt out if that's what you need to do. It's easy to make a withdrawal. We found, by the way, that, that most of those people who uh, have made a withdrawal through the, the pandemic and, and throughout the history of the program continue to save. So, so making that um, sort of mental shift to the idea that, that savings is an ongoing commitment is a, is a good thing. And finally, I think I, I would you know, lean on the, on the first half of the description that, that Sunstein uh, and Thaler had for themselves of libertarians. Um, I, I trust people to be able to make good decisions about the, their own finances. Um, you know, there's, there's great anecdotal and scholarly experience around you know, the, the best thing you can do for someone who's poor is give them money. They're, they're a good judge of what they need and how best to deploy that. So I don't mind saying to somebody, here's this program. If it's not right for you, you can certainly opt out. But the, you know, the majority of people um, in the absence of a program like this don't take it on. And it's understandable because something like retirement is complicated. It's intimidating. It seems like it's so far off, even though it's getting closer every day. And most people then don't act. So if we switch that, um, that assumption, um, then we can let people make the decision to say, that's not right for me. 70% of people participate if there's an option for retirement savings at work. And if you have to go down the street or the electronic street to the bank to set up your own IRA, the number of people who do that is three and a half percent. So I'll take the 70% and try to make it easy for people who need to, to opt out of it, um, let them do that. We also are, are working hard to, to make uh, financial literacy and financial education part of this program. And when we have a chance to interact with people, we can say, you know, if you have some outstanding credit card debt, for example, that's probably a better investment to get that high interest rate taken care of first and then come back to us with your, you know, or, and, and where does an emergency fund, a true emergency fund fit into the, into the scheme of things. But it allows us to have this conversation with people who right now are mostly left out of the financial mainstream. And that's, um, that's a problem for everybody. So I want to move on to another savings program that, that Oregon manages, which is the, the 529 college savings program. Um, can you explain what that is, especially for non-American listeners who have no idea what a 529 program is and what makes Oregon's program unique? I try, uh, I try very hard. It's not a, a critique of the way you introduced it, Colin. I try very hard not to say 529 because you're right. Even in the United States, people have no idea what that is. It's an archaic reference to a, a section of the IRS code. Uh, so no normal human with any sort of a life should know that, um, but it, it refers to what we, what we more commonly uh, refer to as a college savings plan, uh, or an increasing recognition that, that access to education and training after high school requires some uh, financial contribution on the part of students and their, and their families, and wanting to put that power of compound interest uh, to work and, and allow people to, to be ready for that. So this has two significant um, tax benefits when people decide to, to take the step and begin saving for, for education after high school. Um, the earnings that accumulate in those accounts are not taxed federally, so long as they're used for a, a required cost of attendance. And that could be everything from tuition to room and board to um, pots and pans of knives if you're going to a culinary school, um, very broadly defined. Uh, 
uh, could be at any institution anywhere in the United States or beyond, so long as it's eligible for, for federal financial aid and, and accredited. And depending on which state it's in, um, there's also a pretty significant tax benefit for the contributions going in. This is where it's, um, uh, where what we've done in Oregon is, is different. Many states um, who have an income tax have offered a tax deduction for years for, for contributions going into the college savings plan. And that's great if you are fortunate enough to be amongst the, the people who uh, can, can itemize their, their tax deductions. Uh, I saw a report a few uh, couple months ago from Jim Tankersley, the New York Times reporter, who is an Oregonian, by the way, that only one in 10 filers are now itemizing their deductions. So if you're not, if you're in that nine to 10, a tax deduction doesn't do anything. So we changed the way we do it in Oregon and moved from a tax deduction to a refundable tax credit. So that means that if you make a contribution to a college savings plan account in Oregon, you will get a bigger tax refund or a smaller tax bill, not just the taxable income, but the actual bill will change. And that's important because it makes the incentive relevant and useful for everybody, regardless of, of your income. And I want to say this part really clearly, because this is a hell of a good investment for the state. I can say this is the state's chief investment officer. Any kid who has an account, no matter how much is in it, $10 or $10,000 is three times as likely to go to college and four times as likely to graduate from college. This is Willie Elliott's work at the St. Louis Fed and Washington University. And that is so intuitive when you think about it, that if a kid knows that there's an account in her or his name, they know that there's some expectations that somebody has invested in them. And if we're able as a state to say to every Oregon kid, we believe in you and that you're capable and worthy, that's a really fantastic thing. So we put this, um, this tax credit into place. Uh, 2020 was the first year where it's in place. So pandemic change scrambled things a little bit, but it allows us to have this conversation we put a uh, progressive swing on it. So it's dollar for dollar for the lowest income Oregonians and then scales down as, as a person's or family's income goes up. And we have two other uh, incentive programs to get people started. One is called baby grad. So if someone opens an account for an Oregonian, an Oregon baby before their first birthday, we'll put $25 in their account just to get them started full stop. Look at that as a, a great investment. And it, and it has been because we, we spent about $100,000 on those seed accounts. And in the, the year that followed those accounts, this is, this is the uh, interviewer participation uh, portion, Colin. What, what would you guess was the, uh, uh, the number that we saw in follow-on accounts, uh, follow-on contributions? $100,000 in, what would, we, what would you guess? I'm going to guess it's a ridiculously high multiplier because you're putting me up on the spot to guess. Yes. I'm going to say yeah. it's $1.2 million. You know, you're quite close. Um, you're only off by one order of magnitude. It was $12 million. Wow. So we extended that program uh, to kindergrad, the same $25 seed account for kindergartners in Oregon who don't yet have an account. Uh, but again, these just... Um, it measures, I think, of what a terrific investment it is when we can get people started saving for their education after high school. And final point, it's not just four-year institutions. It's community colleges. It's trade schools. It's, uh, we really are trying to make these um, the, the people who use them look more like the rest of Oregon. Um, traditionally, they've been overrepresented by affluent white people from metro areas, and we want them to look like, uh, like all of Oregon. 
and I think it's important to point out that like $25 is, is kind of like a, a Thaler-esque nudge. Like mm-hmm. obviously $25 in the scale of paying for college is, it is literally nothing, but it incentivizes people and puts these accounts on their radar of like, oh, I have $25 in this account. I should consider putting more money in this and growing it. It's, that's absolutely right. And it's the mindset that they will talk to their kids about the fact that the account exists. And even if they don't save the entire cost of attendance and few people will, it's, a, it's potentially a few thousand dollars that they don't have to borrow. So a few thousand dollars of compound interest at your back rather than a few thousand dollars of compound interest weighing you back. I also, I also think it's important to point out, I mean, you hinted at it, but I think the point should be really driven forward that like people who itemize their taxes are like overwhelmingly wealthy. Like yes. you only do that if you have donations you want to put on there to get a tax deduction. Like, well, it means you, you take over income. the standard deduction. That you have sufficient income for that to matter. And that's, I mean, one in 10, according to Jim Tankersley from a, from a couple of months ago, that's not very many people. And so this tax deduction that we had, while well-intended, had become less and less relevant for people. Um, this, is the, this is the main reason um, that we wanted to, to go to a, a refundable tax credit. And we paid for it um, you know, through a really interesting discussion with the legislature by shaving off some of the, the impact on the high end and putting it towards the bottom. And I've had a few conversations with, with people who are sort of on the upper in, end of the income saying, well, no, this, this credit, I said, it's, you know, it's roughly the same amount as you had before, but we're able to redeploy to people at the lower income. And people mainly accept that and recognize that as a good investment. Oh, so switching to this program didn't require a tax increase? Uh, well, it, it wouldn't be a tax increase. Um, what, what we, it's a tax you know, expenditure so the, the question I think you're sort of asking is, did it require spending more money? Yeah. Uh, no, we, we kept it neutral and, and shaved off the top and, and uh, redirected it towards the bottom. And still, it, do, is it true that most states still do it the other way, that they do it as a tax deduction instead of a tax credit? Yes. Yes. I wow. think we may be the only one who has the refundable credit. And I'm nearly certain we have the only one that's the refundable credit with the progressive bet. So it's a greater dollar for dollar at the lowest level. That is something I, I did not know. And the, and the not so secret secret, we tell people all the time, it's uh, for the lowest income uh, joint filers, it's $300. So we can say, look, if you can, if you can scrape together $300 over the course of the year, you'll get it back. And then you could just do it again. So you could roll that $300 you know, 18 or more times uh, through and, and, and get, get a decent chunk towards, uh, towards college or, or community college, trade school, apprenticeship programs. I, I'm doing the math in my head and that's a, that's a decent chunk of change, even if you're going to a, a, a large public university. That's not it, nothing. It's a start. Absolutely. So that's all the questions I had for you. Um, I have definitely now learned what a state treasurer does and I no longer think you guys are not sexy. Like this is a cool <laughs> job. You guys actually have an impact on, on what happens in Oregon. Um, is there anything that I did not ask you about that you think is, is worthy of talking about? Well, I think not so much in terms of specific programs, but I do think that, that one of the, the things that most excites me about um, having the opportunity to be, to be treasurer is, is not only the um, the opportunity, but the responsibility to think about the long run. There's so many things in our in our politics, in our policies, even frankly in our biology that, that crowd the long term out. 
um, that, that make the short term the, the emphasis. And I think that's something that we've all got to grapple with. And you know, being able to, to advocate for policies, for designs, for um, ideas that, that don't necessarily um, play out in the short term is a, is a really rare luxury. Um, and I hope, uh, I hope we can offer some ideas that can, can, we can prove in the, you know, what Brandeis called the laboratories of democracy um, states and, and offer them up to the country. And state treasurers in, are in a really good spot to do that. So wherever you are as a listener, uh, get to know your state treasurer. Well, Tobias, thank you so much for, for joining for this episode. This was fascinating. Again, um, I really can't say that every episode I, I learned something, um, but especially um, about what you talked about with the 529 and the tax credit versus tax deduction has like blown my mind of like, that is an injustice that 40 other, 49 other states do it the wrong way. Um, and now I'm going to complain about this incessantly until at least all the democratic states change it too. Um, so <laughs> thank, thank you. you so much for joining me. Um, thank you. And as always, you're, you're welcome back anytime to, to talk about your nerdy state treasurer <laughs> happenings. Keep in touch, please. <laughs>